Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, February 24th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Golf superstar Tiger Woods recovering from a serious accident after his car skidded off the road and overturned near Los Angeles. Emma Coronel, the wife of former drug lord El Chapo, in custody inside a Virginia jail as we learn new details about the charges against her and the potential reasons for her sudden arrest. And with more than half a million coronavirus deaths reported in the U.S., the FDA now ruling that the single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine is safe, the latest on the next major vaccine that could soon hit the market. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. Today, one of the greatest golfers of all time, Tiger Woods, is awake and responsive after undergoing hours of surgery on his lower right leg and ankle. Woods suffering serious injuries to his legs after his SUV rolled over. Now we're learning new details about that accident and the extent of his injuries. Tiger Woods is lucky to be alive. That's what authorities are saying after the golf icon's SUV rolled over, the violent single car crash causing serious injuries to his legs. The emergency dispatch call came just after 7 a.m. Pacific time, Tuesday in Los Angeles. The silver SUV was found mangled on its side, the windshield broken and gone. No skid marks, no breaking. So apparently the first contact was with the center median and from there then crossed into the opposing lane of traffic, hit the curb, hit a tree, and there was several rollovers during that process. First responders say they had to use an axe and a pry bar to yank out the windshield and pull Woods to safety. He was alive and he was he was conscious. Woods suffered from non-life-threatening injuries, which include compound fractures in his legs, and a no-field sobriety test was given due to the seriousness of his injuries. Firefighters say he was transported to Harbor UCLA Hospital in serious condition. Woods immediately headed into surgery, doctors inserting a metal rod in the golf grate's shin, which suffered multiple comminuted fractures, meaning his bones were shattered to splinters, screws and pins now stabilizing broken bones in his foot and ankle, and another surgery to relieve dangerous pressure and swelling in his muscles. It's very fortunate that Mr. Woods um, was able to uh, come out of this alive. Woods was in Los Angeles over the weekend as the tournament host of the Genesis Invitational at Riviera Country Club. The day before the accident, he was seen with Dwayne Wade. I say the GOAT, he's not comfortable with it, but an opportunity to come out here with this guy right here, man. And the morning of the crash, he was actually on his way to meet future Hall of Fame quarterback Drew Brees and other celebrities for a production shoot with Discovery-owned Golf TV. Woods had just started to rehab from his fifth back operation. He was actually looking forward to the Masters tournament in April. Now messages of support pouring in for a speedy recovery. I'm sick to my stomach. Uh, You know, it hurts to see one of your, I mean, now my closest friends, um, you know, get in in an accident. And man, I just hope he's all right. 
Officials say Woods was traveling at a high rate of speed when he lost control of the vehicle. He was found wearing his seatbelt and authorities say he was even trying to pull himself out of the car when they arrived on the scene. Now turning to the arrest of Emma Coronel. Tuesday was a second night in jail. The wife of the convicted drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. The 31 year old was taken into custody at Virginia's Dulles International Airport on Monday. Edwin Piti is outside the jail in Alexandria, Virginia. Edwin, what's the very latest in this case? Hi, Andrea, this is where Emma Coronel spent a second night. The Alexandria Detention Center will be her home until she faces trial. I can tell you the prosecutors requested she remain in jail based on her close work with the command of the Sinaloa cartel. If convicted, she could face 10 years alive in prison and a $10 million fine, according to federal judge Robin Merriweather. Coronel was read the charges during a virtual hearing on Tuesday, and according to her attorney, Mariel Colon, she appeared nervous and requested a Spanish interpreter, causing an almost 30-minute delay in starting the hearing. As of now, both the defense and prosecutors continue to discuss the date of the next hearing, and the U.S. government insists that Coronel must remain in jail because they believe she has access to dangerous members to the Sinaloa cartel. However, experts believe the wife of convicted drug lord El Chapo could collaborate with U.S. authorities to reach a deal. It is unclear how much leverage she has with the federal authorities because of the serious charges she's facing right now, among them conspiring to distribute narcotics in the U.S., such as heroin, cocaine, marijuana, and methamphetamines, and helping, of course, her husband escape from a maximum security prison in Mexico back in 2015. The FBI says Coronel acted as a messenger between Guzman and his allies. The agents interrogated more than 100 associates of the Sinaloa cartel and also reviewed thousands of intercepted communications. So, Andrea, the reality is that Coronel will remain in this place until she faces trial. And this detention center houses almost 350 inmates. Among them, many of them are high-profile detainees. Reporting in Alexandria, Virginia, Edwin Pitti, your news. Thank you, Edwin, for all those developing details. And now for more on this case, let's go to Mike Vigil. He's the former chief of international operations for the DEA. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on Unios. Welcome. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure. So we know you worked in Mexico for more than a dozen years, and you do have intimate uh, knowledge of the inner workings of the Sinaloa cartel. What was your reaction to Emma Coronel's arrest? Well, actually, I was not shocked because Emma Coronel has always been a Marco princess. She didn't come into that life. She was born into the drug trade because her father, Inez, and her brother, Omar, were drug traffickers in the state of Durango, and she grew up there. Keep in mind that Durango, Chihuahua, and Sinaloa are the form the uh, Golden Triangle, which are very prolific uh, drug trafficking areas. And Emma, uh, Emma Coronel, when she became the wife of uh, Chapo Usman in, in uh, 2007, she became a very trusted confidant 
of Chapo Guzman. Keep in mind that a lot of these cartel leaders, they place a great deal of value in trust. And that trust stems from family members such as Emma Coronel. So Emma Coronel was highly involved. She understands the inner workings of the Sinaloa cartel, which continues to be the most prominent and the most violent drug trafficking organization, not only in Mexico, but in the world. They funnel tons of drugs into the United States, but they also have distribution tentacles in, in at least 40 uh, countries around the world. Mike, you've discussed a little bit about um, some of the things that she's been allegedly involved in. What impact do you believe her arrest will now have on the Sinaloa cartel in the future moving forward? Well, the thing is that it all depends if she cooperates or not. And she has a great motivator for cooperating. She's got two small twin daughters. I believe they're nine years of age that she had with Chapo Guzman. Chapo Guzman is serving a life sentence. So that's going to be weighing very heavily on her mind. Who's going to take care of her children? So if she decides to cooperate, there's a lot of uh, damage that she can do against the Sinaloa cartel. She can provide information that can lead to U.S.-based indictments. And she, other, she also has a great advantage because normally when people cooperate, after they serve their sentence, they're deported to their country of origin. Emma Coronel has dual citizenship, Mexican, and then also United States citizenship, because she was born on the outskirts of San Francisco. So she would be able to remain here. But I believe that, you know, there's a very strong opportunity for Emma Coronel to cooperate and it would put a dent in the Sinaloa cartel. Keep in mind that it's not going to destroy the cartel, but she can definitely uh, cause some damage. Now, on a broader level, what does Coronel's arrest in the U.S. say about U.S.-Mexico relations and the international fight that's going on against drug trafficking? Well, the thing is that the big impact that we had that has really uh, frayed the fabric of bilateral relationships with Mexico was with General Cienfuegos, who was the ex-Secretary of Defense under the Peña Nieto administration. I don't think that the arrest of Emma Coronel is gonna cause further damage to that, but, you know, justice has to be served. We have to do our jobs here in the United States and we, you know, one of our big targets in Mexico is the Sinaloa cartel. And we have indicted many members of that cartel here in the United States. It'll be interesting to see how all this plays out in the coming months. Thank you so much for your time, Mike Vigil, former chief of international operations at the DEA. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Changing topics now, we head to Capitol Hill. On Tuesday, lawmakers got their first chance to grill former officials responsible for the security breakdown at the Capitol building on January 6. And as Rafael Rodriguez explains, the former officials admitted to some failures, but also deflected blame to other security agencies as well. 
For the first time, the key players in charge of protecting the Capitol faced a public grilling about what went wrong on January 6th. The questions revealing a number of breakdowns in communication and planning, breakdowns that were in part bureaucratic and partly because several agencies were just not prepared. None of the intelligence we received predicted what actually occurred. Former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund admitted his force did not anticipate the overwhelming crush of people on January 6th. That lack of preparation led to confusion as multiple law enforcement agencies and the National Guard were eventually scrambled to the Capitol. That delayed response led to even more problems. Frontline officers described how dangerous the situation quickly became. I received chemical burns to my face that still have not healed to this day. I witnessed officers being knocked to the ground and hit with various objects that were thrown by rioters. Several of the officials blamed the hodgepodge of Capitol leadership for a lack of clear direction of what to do and when. They claimed at certain points they were unaware who would be the one to make the call to bring in reinforcements. And in some cases, when they did make that call, their requests went unanswered. I was surprised at the reluctance to immediately send the National Guard to the Capitol grounds. Republican Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley were unironically participating in the hearing, despite their role in spreading the big lie that the election was stolen, which is what helped fuel the false narrative that January 6th was the last chance to overturn the election. What can be done differently to ensure that, that an attack like that never again occurs? While the hearing was designed to be a fact-finding mission, some senators made it political. Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin claimed many of those who stormed the Capitol attempted to do so peacefully. He read an excerpt of what he described as an eyewitness account. He said that the mood of the crowd was positive and festive. Of the thousands of people I passed or who passed me along Constitution Avenue, some were indignant and contemptuous of Congress, but not one appeared angry or incited to riot. Many of the marchers were families with small children. Many were elderly, overweight, or just plain tired or frail. Trace not typically attributed to the riot prone. A very few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority. Some obviously didn't fit in. This, despite the panel being in wide agreement that the insurrection was more than just a spontaneous mob, but instead a planned and coordinated attack. These people came specifically with equipment. You're bringing climbing gear. To, to a demonstration. You're bringing explosives. You're bringing chemical spray, such as what Captain Mendoza, Mendoza had talked about. You're coming in prepare, uh, prepared. I think we're learning more and more and more that this is clearly a coordinated effort. I would agree the evidence would indicate a coordinated attack. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. The U.S. Senate confirmed former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack as the new secretary for the Department of Agriculture Tuesday. This is the second time Vilsack will serve in that post. He previously held the same cabinet position for eight years in the Obama administration. Vilsack faces a number of challenges, including helping farmers hard hit by the pandemic, as well as former President Trump's trade wars. He is also tasked with addressing the needs of rural communities who overwhelmingly support Trump and who are now worried about Democrats passing new regulations. 
And the Senate voted 78 to 20 on Tuesday to confirm Linda Thomas Greenfield to be the next U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Greenfield's confirmation comes less than a week before the United States takes over the top spot at the Security Council for the month of March. Thomas Greenfield will then submit her credentials to U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres on Thursday. Thomas Greenfield was one of President Biden's first national security team picks. Her nomination came as then-President-elect Biden announced he would return to the U.N. post to a cabinet-level position. That was one of several moves Biden made to re-elevate the U.S. to a leadership role in international affairs. Meanwhile, the push for a minimum wage hike faces a make-or-break test this week as a Senate parliamentarian is set to decide whether the provision can remain in the coronavirus relief package. The measure to raise the minimum wage from $7.25 to $15 an hour also faces resistance among some Democrats. Joining us now to talk about the fight for 15 is Mary Kay Henry. She's the president of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Union. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Welcome to U News. Glad to be with you. We know that you've been a strong advocate for raising the minimum wage. Why is now a good time, in your opinion, to pass this measure? Essential workers on the front line of this pandemic who've been showing up to feed us, to care for us, to deliver packages for us, need to have a higher wage so they can care for themselves and their families. Uh, just like Chris Cordona, who's a shift manager at McDonald's in Florida. Um, he got infected with COVID. McDonald's refused to pay his two weeks of self-quarantining. Um, and so he registered to vote as a first-time citizen and voted for the $15 minimum wage in Florida. And if Florida can do it, he believes the nation can do it. And now is the time. Some Democrats and even Republicans oppose a wage hike. Are, they are concerned about the impact on smaller businesses. What's your response to that? You know, we've heard those concerns for about the past eight years where cities and states have taken action to raise the minimum wage. And now 42% of American workers are on a path to 15. And so we believe it's long past time to raise wages so that workers have more money in their pockets. They can spend it in their neighborhoods. They can help small businesses grow. Um, this has be a huge relief for individual families, but it's also really good for the country to rescue the essential workers who've been showing up and sacrificing and getting infected and dying. Um, and this is a way to honor their work and to make sure that every family has the resources they may need to stay safe at home or to help recover from their uh, sickness. Now on Monday, Senator Dick Durbin spoke in support of this wage hike. Let's go ahead and take a listen to what he had to say. $15, I think, is a reasonable standard uh, for people to be able to get by uh, with a 40-hour 40 40 week job. Uh, when you start lowering it, of course, that compromises their opportunities. I hope we can prevail on those who have some misgivings to find a way to improve uh, the minimum wage. We haven't touched it for years. It's long overdue. So why is it $15 an hour? Why is that the standard, the magic number, so to speak? Why that specific amount? Because Democratic Senator Manchin is proposing $11 an hour, for example. 
Well, $15 was seen as ridiculous in 2012 when the fast food workers first went on strike to demand it. And then they have made it a standard. SeaTac, uh, Seattle, San Francisco, California, New York, and now cities across the country have made $15 the standard. And that is why we need to raise wages for all workers across the economy. This will affect 32 million people who've been showing up for work every day. It includes 5 million undocumented workers who also have been showing up to work and doing what they can to help provide for their families and care for us and provide services to all of us during this terrible crisis that the nation is um, handling. And so, that's why we think the $15 minimum wage has to be a part of the American Rescue Plan. The Senate has to vote it and send it to the president's desk for his signature. States like California, Illinois, and even voters in Florida, which is a Republican state, approved provisions raising the minimum wage, as you mentioned earlier. What can be learned from their experience? That it helps um, increase take-home pay and stabilize families who don't have to choose between food and rent and an asthma inhaler, that it helps create new jobs in communities and small businesses because people spend it. It reduces turnover for business and helps uh, businesses save money. Uh, so it's a way for workers, government, business all to benefit. It's an action that is necessary for the nation to uh, recover from the pandemic. Thank you for sharing your perspective with us, SEIU President Mary Kay Henry. Have a great day. Thank you. And in immigration news, on Tuesday, a federal judge in Texas blocked the Biden administration's 100-day moratorium on deportations. Judge Drew Tipton first issued a restraining order on the moratorium last month. That temporary block was set to expire on Tuesday, and now Tipton has made it permanent, though he said he was reluctant to issue an injunction on a national scale. The decision is binding across the country. It prohibits enforcement of the policies Biden laid out in his January executive order, instructing ICE not to deport undocumented immigrants for 100 days. Tipton's decision stands pending a final resolution of the merits of the case or until another federal court in the Southern District of Texas or higher rules otherwise. Meanwhile, along the border, immigration activists are concerned because of the sudden reopening of a Trump-era migrant facility for children. Pedro Rojas has more from South Texas. The overwhelming flow of unaccompanied migrant children at the southern border has forced the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to temporary shelter built during the Trump presidency. In the remote town of Carrizo Springs, Texas, really close to the Texas-Mexico border, HHS officials indicate that the facility can hold 700 people with social distancing, and the government currently has 7,100 migrant children in custody. To ensure the health and safety of these kids, HHS took steps to open an emergency facility to add capacity where these children can be provided the care they need while they are safely before they are safely placed with families and sponsors. Officials also confirmed that the Biden administration is going to reopen the Homestead, Florida detention center to hold unaccompanied migrant children. 
Dr. Rob Sarmon from Children at Risk insists that the government must do all it can to reunite the minors with their relatives in the U.S. quickly. The application of the law could wait. The court could also wait until the minors are with their families. That is what every child needs to avoid harming them more now and in their future, Dr. Sarmon says. Meanwhile, Border Patrol is reporting a continued increase on number of arrests of minors at the border. Agents describe the type of groups where unaccompanied minors are frequently found. There are families, children alone from young age, and also adults alone, male and female, Agent Jesse Moreno says. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services states that it has enough funding for more than 13,000 beds for unaccompanied children, but cannot use them all in their conventional shelters due to the fears of a COVID outbreak. In Edinburgh, Texas, Pedro Rojas, U News. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. You News, your world, you News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. The World Health Organization reporting a sixth consecutive week of declining global coronavirus cases, but here in the U.S., variants are causing major concerns. A new report predicting a new surge in just the next few weeks. This as vaccine manufacturers ramp up production. Lorraine Gassidis has the latest on the pandemic. In the U.S., the threat of a new COVID-19 surge getting more and more possible as variants spread. The U.K. variants already reaching 45 states. A new report from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy warns that variants could cause a spike in cases beginning in March. President Joe Biden on Tuesday saying the government will probably start sending out masks soon in the mail. Biden has called on everyone to wear a mask when out in public, and he has made it mandatory on federal property. We can't pull back on that and get complacent. The same report suggesting the best plan of action is speeding up vaccinations by delaying second doses, at least for now. In a race against time, vaccine makers pledging 240 million doses by the end of March. We currently are on track to deliver the first 100 million doses of the vaccine by the end of March. We anticipate that that will get up to 13 million doses a week by the end of March. And as production ramps up, states poised to get bigger weekly deliveries. States will now receive 14.5 million doses uh, this week, up from 8.6 million doses per week when the president took office. That's an increase in, vac in vaccine allocations of nearly 70% during the Biden-Harris administration. According to the CDC, 17% of the U.S. adult population has now received at least one shot. States banking on declining cases and growing vaccinations to slowly go back to normal. In New York City, two arenas opening at 10% capacity. The city also set to reopen movie theaters next week. 
And the White House now confirming that they will be sending out 26 million masks to different parts of the United States, mostly concentrated to health, uh, health centers, food pantries, and soup kitchens to give people with lower resources access, plenty of access to masks if they need one. Also, the FDA is set to give Pfizer permission to start storing their vaccines in regular uh, refrigeration instead of ultra-cold refrigerators, which had been poised as a challenge, a very expensive one, to be able to distribute the vaccine. And the FDA is also saying that although Johnson & Johnson still does not have emergency use authorizations, they do meet all requirements. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for all those details. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.